So put our Bibles, uh, goal tonight is 6, 7, and 8 in Jeremiah. A uh, little review as we get into Jeremiah. Jeremiah would be considered one of the major prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and they're major only because of the number of chapters. When we get to the minor prophets, they're only minor because they have fewer chapters. Some of them overlap. As we look at Jeremiah, uh, he is called to foretell the destruction and eventual captivity of the people in Jerusalem to the king of Babylon. And his message is um, uh, a message that's imminent, uh, even though it's intertwined with the Lord's um, heartfelt ache of, uh, I wish you would, you know you should, but I know you're not going to. And this is really the background of the book. As I've mentioned, Jeremiah ministered before, during, and after the fall of Jerusalem. I like it because Jeremiah and Lamentations, along with the book of Job, are actually a part of the scriptures, and they deal with the reality of the Christian walk. When the Lord said, if, if you follow me, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me daily, and know that the way is narrow, few there will be that find it, and it's difficult. And um, that isn't spoken enough, uh, especially in these days when we're going to be continually marginalized um, as we seek to stick to what the word has to say, Jeremiah didn't have one convert. He didn't have one person who wanted to listen to his message because it wasn't a popular message. His message was simple. Um, uh, Your sins have taken you far past the point of judgment. It should have already come. And um, there really is no hope. Judgment is imminent. And um, you need to capitulate. Don't fight against the king of the north when he comes against you uh, because it will be futile, to say the least. And um, yet, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He didn't want the job. He was called, we read in chapter 1, even while he was before he was in the womb, the Lord called him into the prophetic ministry. And um, he really didn't want the job. And because everything that he has to say is negative and not positive. And I can't help but go to the extreme on the other side, and that is telling people um, that everything is fine and well. And I know you know me well enough that I'm not afraid to mention Joel Olstein by name. He has the largest church, 48,000 people in uh, Houston, Texas. But every one of his books, without exception, is how you can have a better life now. And it's all about you. It's all about being better, something positive that's going to impact you to make you feel good. Reading the book of Jeremiah is not going to make you feel good. Reading the book of Lamentation is not going to make you feel good. But it's the truth. It's a fact of history. And it's primarily given to the people that are living in Jerusalem. Now, in the last couple of days down in Orlando, we had this horrific um, uh, Muslim terrorist who, by his own admission, whether ISIS takes advantage of it or not, claims that he did it in the name of the, the God of Allah. When you read the Quran, you will not find the city of Jerusalem mentioned one time. And yet they claim it's their third holiest city, and thus the reason for the Dome of the Rock um, being there. It's a made-up story that Muhammad rode his horse somewhere to a far place. That's as close as you're going to get to what they say Jerusalem is. And um, the Dome of the Rock, which is front and center, I mean, Jerusalem is a city in the center of the world, but the Temple Mount is the heart and soul of the city of Jerusalem. And what we're going to be reading this evening is part of the rebuilding process. When uh, Josiah was doing a building project to restore 
the temple, they found the word of God. And Josiah was one of the good kings that was there. But in the Quran, Jerusalem is not mentioned. You can't turn a chapter throughout the scriptures, and um, I don't know, it's over 900, 1,000 times, that Jerusalem is mentioned over and over and over again. So the focal point, according to Zechariah, it says Jerusalem is going to become a cup of trembling in the last days. So as we keep this in mind, and what I'm going to close up with tonight, are the times in Israel's history where Jerusalem was taken and it fell. It is a major part of the Bible. It is not a happy, clappy Bible study. And um, the destruction here, uh, chapter 2 through 6, and we're going to be in 6 tonight. I wanted to get to 6 last week because 2 through 6 deals with Jeremiah's first sermon, his first message. So as we get into chapter 6 this evening, we've seen that through 2 through 6, the prophecies which Jeremiah delivered during his first five years of his ministry as a young man around 20. Uh, He delivered those severe predictions, condemning the people and pronouncing judgment upon them. So that's what we have in chapters 2 through 6. 7 are going to be prophecies through 10. It's a whole other section. But I want to get through chapter uh, 6 this this evening and not um, cut short going through the verse by verse. So, Uh, The future fall of Jerusalem to be destroyed is the title, and I want to look at the first 15 verses of of, uh, this book. Uh, O you children of Benjamin, uh, gather yourself to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Now, Benjamin and Judah, when it says Benjamin, it's referring to uh, the two tribes that remained in the south. When the kingdom was divided after Solomon, you had the ten northern kingdoms under uh, Jeroboam, and then you had the two southern kingdoms, the Benjamin and Judah, that were in the south. So when it says Benjamin, it's referring to um, Judah and Jerusalem. Gather yourselves and get ready to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Jesus is going to say the same thing in Matthew chapter 24 when Jerusalem will once again um, be destroyed. But um, that's at the end of the study. He says, Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a signal fire at Beth Ahacherim, for disaster appears out of the north and great destruction. Again, the north is repeated um, over and over and over again. But what we have in view is uh, the nation of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar in particular. He said, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and a delicate woman. The shepherd with their flock shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pastor in his own place. So the Lord's perspective on what he'd like to see is this delicate woman, um, and uh, just at peace, each one shall have pastor at his own place. That's what he's desiring. And it makes me think of the scripture that, that uh, uh, what he's looking for is for them to change their ways and have real repentance. And, uh, and the Lord said that he's not willing that any should perish, but that people would come to repentance. So now that you're seeing the Lord's heart come out in all this, as this lovely woman, delicate woman, taking care of her flocks, just keeping busy, and uh, each one at peace at at their own home. That's what he would desire that they would have, but that's not what's going to happen. Instead, he says, prepare war against her. Arise and let's go up at noon. Woe to us, for the day goes away, for the shadows of the evening are lengthening. Arise and let us go by night, and let us destroy her palaces. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Hew down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. This is a city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. Now, one of the destructions of Jerusalem, that's just coming to mind now, is um, 
one, when we think of David's shortcomings and his faults, probably the one that had the greatest consequences wasn't with the adulterous affair with Bathsheba. It wasn't with the murder of Uriah the Hittite. But towards the end of his life, he commanded his general to go and number the tribes of Israel to see how many men he had for war. And uh, we might think, well, that doesn't stack up to adultery or murder. And yet the consequences for that, because what was David known for? What was he always singing about? They that wait. <laughs> like we say tonight, that song was written by David Jeremiah. Just a personal story with that. I got to be friends with David. It was a very popular song when he wrote it. But he was really going through some trials, and we just sort of clicked and became friends, and we'd talk on a regular basis. And I got a, a phone call from him one day, and, and he says, Bro, he says, I just do not know what to do. I am in the fire big time, and I just don't know what to do. And so I said, They that wait upon the Lord. He goes, Oh, man, bro, don't do that. <laughs> and it's, it's just like um, um, that song. Well, I'm getting set, carried away on songs here. But the very song that the Lord had given to him and is exactly what he needed to hear. He needed just to be still and uh, wait on the Lord and go through the storm. And, you know, when, when the study started tonight, it was raining so hard I couldn't see the other side of the street. Now the sun is coming up right there. So that's, that's what the Christian life is like. And we're told to be instant in season and out of season. When, when it's tough, you just keep going. And when it's raining, you just keep going because the sun's going to come out. And, you know, David got through, his, got through his trial and he was able to go out and sing the song and minister to other people. But there's times you um, have to minister the same things that you've been ministering to other people. So anyone want to say amen to that? That's what Jeremiah is doing here. It's not, it's what needs to be done, but it's just not pleasant. And so he says in verse 7, as fountains well up with water, uh, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and, and plundering are heralding her. Before my continually our grief and wounds, be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you lest I make you desolate in the land not inhabited. For thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel, and as a grape gatherer puts your hands back into the branches. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they will hear it? Now this is put in a question form. Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. And then saying, I don't want to hear it. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. You see the patience of the Lord here? Uh, Genesis 6 says, his spirit will not always strive. So that's telling me that there's a line that you can cross where a person becomes reprobate, where they've hardened their heart, hardened their heart, hardened their heart, and the Lord's striving with them and striving with them and striving with them. And the Lord says, okay. You've crossed the line, and I'm going to let you go. And that's the situation that, that the, the Lord is saying here. I'm weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the ch- children outside and on the assembly of young men together, for even the husband shall be taken with the wife and the aged with him who was full of days. And her house shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land says the Lord, uh, because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness, and from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abominations, and we're going to see just how bad those abominations are in chapter 7. No, they were not ashamed. They didn't even know how to blush. I'm afraid our country's gotten to that place today where 
People don't know how to blush anymore. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At that time I punish them. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Now, what's good in all this is when you get to Daniel chapter 9, the very first verse says, I, Daniel, understood, reading Jeremiah the prophet, that 70 years are determined upon my people Israel. Now what the Lord is wanting all along is for somebody to stand in the gap and confess the sins of the people and the nation, and um, that's what he's looking for. So that's verse 1 of chapter 9. But then the first 19 verses is a heartfelt Broken-hearted prayer, Daniel saying, Lord, I get it. I know what you want. You're absolutely right. We've been absolutely wrong. You've given us a time out for 70 years. You've taken us out of the land. And when you read the prayer, it sort of builds in intensity uh, as he confesses the sins of his own people. And... Um, you know, Franklin Graham was down in Madison today, and I got a text from Josh. Here he is standing next to Franklin Graham. He says, guess who I'm hanging out with today? So when you run into Josh, just tell him he's going to be hard to live with for the next who knows how long, you know. So I texted him back, and I said, did you know that he used to be a biker in his younger days, and he actually wrote a book called uh, Rebel with a Cause instead of Rebel Without a Cause? Franklin didn't always walk with the Lord. And actually, the Calvaries, I I think, had an impression uh, upon uh, Calvary. A couple of the guys in Calvary Chapel are on Franklin's board. But he was uh, in in Wisconsin today down in Madison, and Josh got to spend some time with him as they talked about Harleys and BMWs. (laughs) And um, so Daniel, in the same way, just prayed this prayer that goes on where he basically, now that the punishment has been done, now that the sin has been confessed, as he's building up in his prayer, the Lord interrupts him. And he's, he's forgiven. And he gives them all the information and more um, in Daniel chapter 9. I stopped short of talking about one of the destructions of, the Jew, of uh, Israel, Jerusalem, with, with David being grievous, was right before David cried out and repented, he saw the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn over the city of Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. The reason David bought the Temple Mount is because that's where God stopped the plague against Israel. 70,000 people died because of David's... Um, misrepresenting the Lord. He's always telling people, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. And he's going out and counting how many people he has in his army. And um, that was a more, this, this was one of the more severe judgments in the Bible concerning the city of Jerusalem. But the reason we have a Temple Mount is because that's where the, that's where the plague ended. But the, David actually saw the angel with the sword drawn and it was ready to come down and David says, it's on me, Lord, not on the people. Don't hurt the sheep. And the Lord says, all right, that's enough. And he called off the, the angel, and that's where the, that's where the plague ended. David bought the piece of property and made sacrifices to the Lord. Today it's called the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Verse 16, I want to take a little time on. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. And then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And also I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. The old ways. The old ways go back to when Joshua brought the children of Israel into the land. Moses could not do it uh, because of his anger and his wrath at the waters of Meribah. And even though he led them in the wilderness for 40 years, when you go to Israel, uh, Mount Nebo 
is on the east side of the, of the Dead Sea. He could look into and he could see uh, Jericho, but he wasn't going to be able to go in. Only Joshua could take him into the promises, into, into the promised land. Now, remember we often say for every um, Old Testament picture, uh, for every New Testament teaching, there's an Old Testament picture. To me, this is one of the best ones. Uh, Moses and Joshua. John 1 verse 17 says, The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, the law can't bring you into the promises of God. You have to live a perfect life in order for that to happen. The standard, though, is the law. So here you have a picture of Moses. He can't, by, just by the fact that he represents the law, the law came by Moses, but it was grace that brought the children of Israel over the Jordan into the promised land. Now Joshua, when you change it, Joshua, Jesus is Joshua. So what you have is Jesus saying, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I have not. I've not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So there's the picture. Moses couldn't bring them in. God allowed the sin to happen so he could say, sorry, Moses, you can't do it. And it had to happen because it would destroy the picture any other way. When Joshua, he's the only one that can bring us into the promises of God. Now, it says, remember the old ways. Well, what were the old ways? Well, the generation of Joshua walked with the Lord. But after that one generation of walking with Joshua, um, we went through the 360-year cycle of the judges. And uh, they would go up and down like this for 360 years. And every time they were at the bottom, the Lord would raise up another, another judge. And uh, they would go through their period of time of repentance. Well, remember those days. And then there was, of course, the time of uh, the zenith of the history of Israel, of course, is under David. And he's known not for, he's known for being a man after God's own heart. That's what David is known for. But he was a man's man, he was a warrior's warrior, and he was a musician, musician's musician. He was the top in all three of those categories. But what he's known for is that he loved the Lord, and he articulated that in the Psalms. What we feel David was able to put down and write out in the book of Psalms, whether you're up, whether you're down, it's, it's all written uh, most of the songs, almost half of them were written, 72 of them, I think, were written by, by David. So remember those days. Solomon inherited that, and Solomon started out really, really good. And um, he was humble. He felt inadequate for the job, told the Lord so. He says, I'm a child. I don't know how to come in. I don't know how to, I don't know how to come out. What I need is some wisdom. Will you please give me wisdom? And the Lord was pleased with the prayer of Solomon. And he says, you got it. You got it, Solomon. And I'm going to give it to you because you didn't ask for vengeance on your enemies. You didn't ask for riches or wealth or honor. Because you didn't ask for those things, I'm going to give you the, the wisdom that you want. I'm going to make you the wisest man that ever walked this planet. And uh, besides that, I think I'll add in, I'm going to give you the riches, and I'm going to give you the honor, and I'm going to give you those things too. So now you probably have the wealthiest man that ever lived. 666 talents of gold every year came into Solomon. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of his, of his wealth that he had. And, and uh, the Lord is saying here, remember those days when there was a Joshua, when there was a David, when there was a Solomon, and when there was these men who really walked in the ways of the Lord. But they said they will not walk in it, and nor will we listen to watchmen that you've sent over us, warning them, saying, look out, don't repeat. And we use Jeremiah in earlier chapters, use the example, you didn't learn your lesson because of what happened to your sister Israel in the north. They were judged and taken into captivity in 710 B.C. by the Assyrians. And he's, now he's pointing to Benjamin in Judah 
in Jerusalem and say, you guys just haven't learned your lesson from your sister, and now I'm going to bring in judgment, and you're not willing to go back to those times and live um, as David lived. Now, the sad part about it is when Solomon was old, just like when David was old, um, here's the wisest man who ever lived who's marrying all these pagan, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, how do you deal with 700 wives? I want to know. <laughs> and then 300 concubines on top of that. And the Lord says, don't ever multiply wives or horses to yourself to show your own strength. Don't do it. I'm your strength, and I'm your first love. So keep it simple. He doesn't do it. And it's unthinkable, but the wisest man who ever lived, did. he was known throughout the Middle East for horse trading. He would be like the local car, biggest car dealership in the, in the state. And that's where he made a lot of his money. And then the wives that he married from these foreign countries turned his heart away from the Lord and he led the children of Israel at the end of his life into idolatry, which caused the split. And that's when you have um, Jeroboam taking the 10 tribes and going north. They did not have one good king. They had 19 of them. They did not have one good king. The reoccurring phrase in the book of the kings, when it talks about the ones in the north, they did evil in the sight of the Lord after their sins of Jeroboam their father. 19 times for every one of the kings. And when Solomon sinned and Rehoboam came to the throne, of the 19 or 20, there were eight or nine of them that, that were actually good kings that sought the Lord. Hezekiah would be um, a good example, contemporary of um, Isaiah. So when it says here, remember, here was Joshua, just one generation. Now, today it's all too personal for me as I see a generation of the Jesus movement starting out well, uh, being led by the Spirit, keeping it simple, and um, remembering um, the wisdom that comes from the older rather than looking to the younger generation for leadership. And I'm sad to report that in the church at large, even in our own movement, we have a moving away from remembering the old ways and walking in them, not heeding the warning, but wanting to be more um, relevant is the, the key word to, to throw in here, to be relevant. Well, believe me, gang, um, Jeremiah is not a relevant book. So you want to give me an amen? It's not what anybody wants to hear at all. It's not tickling your ears that the Bible clearly warns us against in these days. The Lord says, I'm going to send you watchmen. They're going to warn you. Problem is, they're not going to listen. So you may think this is an old story with an old history book. It's not. What happened then, if you're around long enough, it comes back around again. And now I'm watching a generation being seduced and looking to communicate and articulate and wanting to be more relevant in theology rather than remembering what's been handed down to us. So I see the Lord speaking to our generation and the church at, la at large. Um, listen to the watchmen. Listen to those that are warning, saying, no, 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 you remember what you were handed down. And you remember the old ways and you walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. But if you try to keep up with the current trends or uh, the seeker-sensor model or the purpose-driven lifestyle, um, you, you may be or have the appearance of success. Uh, but look at Jeremiah. There's nothing successful outwardly about Jeremiah's ministry. Zero, nada, nothing. Not only that, everybody hated him. And the rumor is and that his own people killed him when he was down in Egypt. So they didn't heed these important words in verses 16 and 17. And now he says, therefore, hear you nations, and know, O congregation, what is among you. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on the people, 
even on the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but they've rejected it. Come frankincense from Sheba, and sweet cane from a far country, can, and sweet cane from a far country. Uh, your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people, and the fathers and their sons together shall fall on them. The neighbors and friends shall perish, and thus says the Lord. Behold, a people comes from the north. Now, how many times have we heard that? Over and over again from the beginning of the book. A great nation will rise from the farthest parts of the north. And we have Babylon again in view. They will lay hold of bow and spear. They are cruel. They have no mercy. Uh, their, their voice roars like the sea, and, and they ride on horses. As men of war set in array against you, O daughters of Zion, we have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as a woman who is in labor. Do not go out to the field nor walk by the way because of the sword of the enemy. Uh, fear is on every side. O daughters of my people, clothe yourself in sackcloth and roll about in ashes and making mourning as for an only son and more and mourn bitter lamentations. Lamentation will be the next short book that we will study after Jeremiah. For the plunder will suddenly come upon us, and I have set you as uh, a sray and a fortress among my people, that you may know uh, and test their way. Uh, they are stubborn rebels, walking as slanders. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. Uh, the bellows blow fiercely. Uh, the lead is consumed by the fire, and the smelter refines, refine is vain. For the wicked are drawn off. People will call uh, them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. Now, when it, and as we go back here, we want to apply something in our future. As Jeremiah is talking to the people, he's saying, here's your future. You're going to be like a woman who's having labor pains. And um, it's going to come suddenly upon you, just like that. And I think, you know, what we're seeing um, beginning to happen is what the Lord talked about for our own nation because of our moral decline is this whole, what he says in Matthew is that this is just the beginning of sorrows um, it's not getting better. And I have to stand up here and read Jeremiah and make the, the practical application for our generation that we're living in. And I don't have any good news to tell you, except to say that perilous times are coming and men's hearts are actually going to fail them for fear when they see the things that are coming upon the earth. Um, everybody's, everybody's caught up and rightly so, to you know, take care of your family and pay the bills. But we do live in a pressure cooker world, and we don't get, even get shocked anymore. You know, the, the reality is we just had the most serious um, single murder in our nation's history. And um, we've almost gotten numb to the fact that this is happening, and it happened again today. And it'll probably continue to go on. So on Sunday, we're going to be talking a little bit about preterism and what that means as, as we get into this. And um, we'll, we'll tie that into, um, well, if I tell you too much, then I'll spoil Sunday. So I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> and we just cracked out chapter 6. And basically... The, the, the subject matter is here, Jerusalem is to be destroyed. All right. Now, the prophecies, beginning with chapter 7 through 10, were given after the law of the Lord had been discovered in the temple during the time of the cleansing ordered by King Josiah. So, beginning with chapter 7, what's being written here 
is after the book of the law was found during this building project by Josiah, who was a good king. Josiah and Jeremiah were friends. Josiah was greatly concerned about his people, which revealed that he had a personal relationship with God as a young man. He and Jeremiah, being approximately the same age and both zealous for God, they were probably good friends. Hilkiah the priest, who evidently the father of Jeremiah, is one who found the law of the Lord. He's the one who brought it to Josiah. The temple was cleaned out and repaired and back in use, which, of course, was a very wonderful thing. But now Jeremiah stands in the gates of the Lord's house and gives a prophecy to his people. Um, This is the way that chapter 7 opens. So the background of chapter 7 is building project. Uh, Rebuild the temple. In the process, they find a copy of the law. Josiah sees it. And um, now these, in chapter 7, are going to be some of the first words that Jeremiah speaks concerning the temple and the house of the Lord. So that's sort of the chronological order here. So let's pick it up in chapter 7. And we read the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, I want you to stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So the building project is done. He's talking about the temple. And proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah. Now, in the last chapter, remember, it says, listen up, Benjamin. Now he's saying, listen up, Judah. They're one and the same. So he's speaking to the same group when he says Benjamin. He means Judah. When he says Judah, he also is including Benjamin. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. But do not trust in the lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, now here's some of the list of grievances and sins uh, that is the reason that the Lord has caused the judgment to come. So obviously, um, They weren't being fair in their dealings with their neighbor. Um, Verse 6, if you don't oppress the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood, implying that they were in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, which they did, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold your trust in lying words that cannot profit, Will you steal, and here the list goes on, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this place, which is called by my name, saying we have delivered to do all these abominations. It would be equivalent to being a thief all week long, sleeping around with a different woman every night for a week, and then on top of that, um, um, secretly <laughs> being, uh, well, what, what can I say? A Mormon or Jehovah Witness, um, believing in re- reincarnation, the whole gamut, and then come to church on Sunday morning and say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and the temple of the Lord. And the Lord is saying, I just don't want to hear it. Because until you change and live every day with me, then it's the height of hypocrisy that Jesus saw in Matthew 23 because that's exactly what the Pharisees were, were doing. They were all talk, but in everyday life, they, they had no concern for anybody else but themselves. They were committing adultery. They were stealing. They were worshiping all these other gods. I haven't even mentioned the worst sin yet. That's coming up. All right, verse, so that's verses 1 through, one through 10. Although the people were talking about how wonderful the temple was, they were still worshiping Baal. 
their philosophy was that, well, since the temple was repaired, uh, they were at least tipping their hats to God on the Sabbath day, and he would protect them. It would be like saying, well, I, I went to church on Sunday. When I was real young, I'd just gotten saved. I was in Oshkosh driving cabs on, an, on, on the night shift and, and other times. And um, I would pick people up, take them to church, drop them off in church, and pick them up after church and drive them to the nearest bar. And then they would call me later that night, and I would pick them up and take them home because they couldn't drive home. And I got to know the routine of it. You see, it didn't matter what you did outside the church as long as you went to that particular church and confessed that sin, then it was okay to sin. And we think, well, that certainly didn't happen in the New Testament. Well, yeah, what the heck, let's turn it. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. That's exactly what was happening. And it was happening in the Roman church. Romans 6, verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? In other words, the young Roman Christians were thinking, hey, this is great. God is into forgiving sins. Let's sin. And that's what they were saying. Shall we continue in sin so that God's grace can abound even more? He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. I remember when I got saved, um, the word was out. You know, Dwight flipped out. Just don't go around him anymore. He's, he is just flipped out. And um, I, friends who I hadn't seen for a couple of years, got the warning, but they thought they would check it out for themselves. And sure enough, you know, I I wasn't in their lifestyle anymore. But the good news is, it was such a radical transformation that, um, you know, it's the thing, in the Christian walk, you realize that when you become a Christian, you realize you're being watched like a hawk, right? Is everybody aware of that? And everybody aware that you're one of them, born-again kinds, and uh, that you're very, very narrow-minded in some of your moral beliefs, and you have absolute standards for what is right and what is wrong. And believe me, they're watching you. Let me tell you when they're watching you the most. It's when you're going through the fiery trial. And um, they're going to say, well, let's see how this Christian stuff works now when things aren't going so good for them or whatever. And you persevere through it. And um, you said, well, you say, well, the Lord said this was going to happen. And he clearly laid it out that we were going to go through fiery trials that are absolutely necessary for your growth in the Lord. Good place for an amen. (laughs) You see, because the Lord knows where you need to grow. And he knows how much faith that you have. Now, he knows that, but you don't. So how do you know that you have faith unless your faith is actually tested? You see, it's in the testing. The the old saying, the proof is in the pudding. Okay, we'll put Job to the test. He blesses the Lord. Let's see what he's made out of when things aren't going so well. So he takes everything away. Takes his health away. Okay, let's see where he stands now. Well, Job came out the way the Lord wants us to come out. with The attitude of gratitude saying, hey, what does it matter? Naked I came, naked I go. Praise the Lord. And, um, you know, it it takes a while to get to that place. Um, But people are watching. They're always watching to see how you handle the trial. But the good news is we're in the changing process. But the God who lives inside of us, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't that a stabilizing thought? Sure is, and he changes not. And I know his nature and his character, high standard to to try to attain to, but at least it's there. You know, at least it's there. Here's the goal. Well, I'm not anywhere near that, but at least it's there. I know what I'm shooting for. And so it's a sanctification process. We're not 
He's changed us a lot from day one. The Romans had a lot to learn. When they first got saved, well, God's forgiven sin. That's great. Let's sin a lot. And as long as we go to church on Sunday and confess that sin, we'll just go right back out and do it again. Come back next Sunday, get forgiven for all those sins, and go back out and do it again. Um, Where do I leave off? Jeremiah somewhere? (laughs) All right, verse 11, chapter 7. says, Has a house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I even I have seen it, says the Lord. Well, of course, who do we think of here? We see Jesus coming into the temple, and they've turned it into a place to make a buck. Well, the, the Lord made a whip, and he turns the tables over. I mean, he cleaned, he cleaned the house. And he says, this isn't a place to make money. This is, this is my father's house. This is a house of prayer. And he drove them out. I'd love to give anything to see that one. That day happen. And that's what it's saying here. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves? Well, in Jesus' day it did. Behold, and, in, and much of the church today. I have seen it, says the Lord. But going on to my place, which is in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to this house, which is called by my name, in which you trust, in other words, they were trusting in the church, not in the Lord, and to this place, which I gave to you and your fathers, as I've done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim, when it says Ephraim, He's talking about past tense judgment of the ten northern, northern tribes. He says, therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry of prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I'm not going to hear you. I'm not going to listen. Uh, do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. The fathers kindle the fire. The woman needs their dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. Now, the queen of heaven goes way back to Egypt. And every major world-dominating society, whether it was Egypt, whether it was Babylon, whether it was Rome, has a mention of the queen of heaven. The queen of heaven, excuse me, in um, our modern times would be Mary. Uh, She's been deified. Uh, She's supposed to be a perpetual virgin. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Um, But in Roman Catholicism, that would be the equivalent to the queen of heaven. If you're really interested in this, the authoritative work on the subject is The Two Babylons by Hislop. And the book's that thick. But he takes what I just read here and gives you the complete background and, and traces the connections between Babylon and Rome. The guy's name is Hislop, the two Babylons. And they pour out their drink offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger. Do not provoke me to anger, says the Lord, and do not, uh, they do not provoke themselves to the shame in their own faces. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out in this place, and on a man and beast, on the trees, on the fields, on the fruit, on the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Again, this is all reference to when Nebuchadnezzar comes down and burns Solomon's temple to the ground. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifice and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought you out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Saul was rejected. The Lord told Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. And Saul was released from the throne because of his lack of obedience and not fulfilling what the Lord had 
told him to do in wiping out all the Amalekites. And walk in all the ways I have commanded you that it might be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ears, but walked in the counsel and the imagination of their evil hearts. Just like the days of Noah, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Being a product of the 60s, it was, if it feels good, do it. And that was, and don't trust anybody over 40. (laughs) It keeps changing now that I'm getting older those years. And went backwards and not forwards. And since that day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day I have even sent you and all my servants and prophets daily rising up early and sending them, yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their necks. They did worse than their fathers. Jesus said, in talking about the prophets, which of the prophets didn't you kill? That was the Lord's comment when he was talking about God sending them. He says, tell me which ones you didn't kill. Therefore, you shall speak all these words to them, but they won't obey you. They also, you shall also call to them, but they're not going to listen. So you shall say to them, this is the nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Um, Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the desolate hearts. The Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah... Again, now we're talking in the south. And I know I'm being repetitive. The northern ten tribes are already gone. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abomination in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. Now this is is, uh, really how bad it is and has gotten. In verses 31 to the end of this chapter. They have built the high places of Tophet which is in the valley of the sons of Himan, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command. And I'm glad the Lord put that in there. Uh, Nor did it come into my heart. So, you know, it just can't get any worse than that. Um, What we're doing today is abortions inside the mother's womb. And um, that is equivalent, um, in my opinion, to the moral decay of our own country. But when, when you see the Lord's anger here, you don't realize just how bad it actually is until you get to verse 31, where they're actually offering to Moloch, that was the God that they were worshiping, um, and the Lord makes it clear, I never told them to do that, nor ever has it come into my heart. It was a test that was given to, I'll, I'll tell the story rather than try to hurry through another chapter. Another New Testament teaching and Old Testament picture, one of the, the greatest ones in the Bible, of course, is when the Lord <clears throat> told Abraham, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, to a place that I will show you called Moriah, three days' journey from where he was, and I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, Abraham did not hesitate, and the Lord knew all along that he was going to allow this to play out for a couple of different reasons. First of all, it would prove Abraham's love to the Lord himself. But Abraham, in being obedient, and when you read the context, there's no hesitation. Abraham prepared the donkey. He prepared um, um, the wood. He had the knife. It was a continuous flowing, and he was on his way on a three days journey to the land of Moriah. And when you get to the land of Moriah, by the way, when you go to Jerusalem today, the Temple Mount is Moriah, but it extends up to the high point. The Temple Mount is at 742 
meters above sea level. The place that we call Golgotha, the place of the skull, is the highest point on Mount Moriah. There's seven mountains around. There's Mount Scopus, Mount Zion. But Mount Moriah is actually where Abraham offered Isaac. I don't believe that all the rabbis say it all happened on the Temple Mount. I don't believe that. Plus, it doesn't make sense. If you're going to offer an offering, it always talks about on the high places. So why only go halfway up a mountain and not to the top, was my question. So when the knife was in the air, and the Lord knew it wasn't going to happen, and a um, voice came from heaven and said, Enough, Abraham. Now I know that you won't hold anything back from me. You've laid it all out. And there isn't anything that you wouldn't give to me. And uh, he said, there's a sheep over there and caught in a thicket. Take that and make that the offering. And then it says that um, um, Abraham understood, well, let's go to it. We'll, we'll wind this up tonight. Let's go to Genesis 22 with uh, this picture that, the point that I want to end here where he says, I've never commanded you to do this. It never comes in my heart that I would ever do that. Except in this case, in um, in um, chapter 22, pick it up, verse 12. Do not lay your hand on the lad. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. And of course, the picture in the beginning, it says, take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Well, what does that sound like? John 3.16, that God gave his only begotten son. So what Abraham says in verse 14 is he realizes that it's a picture and he's acting out a part that's going to be fulfilled by another father in the future who's going to go through with it. So in verse 14 it says, And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, The mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Future tense. In other words, in the future, at this very spot, another father is going to offer his son, only then is when it's going to be fulfilled. And... uh, Abraham knew he was going to return with his son. Why? Because he, all the promises were all in Isaac. And if, if it meant resurrecting Isaac, then it would be. Um, the idea of a three days journey is significant in this because in the mind of Abraham, his son was dead for three days. It was a done deal. He was going to go through with it. And then after three days, he tells the young, uh, the men that were with him, he says, just stay here, both of us are coming back. Did both of them come back? They both came back. And what happened on that very same place, um, um, we have what took place on Golgotha. And this, verse 14, is a prophecy that was fulfilled uh, when, when the Lord actually was taken. Well, I keep saying we're going to get through three chapters, and I keep lying every single time. So uh, I'm gonna, we'll, we'll leave it at that as we finish chapter 7 of uh, Jeremiah. The sun's out. Let's stand, and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, as we make our way through the book of Jeremiah, um, certainly we can identify as if we're simply true to your word. Um, we're just grateful, I'm grateful, Lord, that you give us all aspects of life here, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the times of exceeding great joy and blessing. And then there's times and days in which we live. As we understand Bible prophecy, um, there are perilous times that lie ahead. Your word is clear on that. So, Lord, even through the midst of it, we know that you have a purpose and you have a plan, and we have read the end of the book, and we know how it all turns out. In the meantime, um, help us not compromise. Help us remember the old ways that have been laid down, and help us not compromise in 
seeking to be pertinent and relevant with current trends that draw in people, but for all the wrong reasons. Lord, may this house be a place where we can come and worship you and where we can study your word chapter by chapter and verse by verse and leave feeling that we've had a good meal. So Lord, I pray for your people tonight as we go out, as you continue to change us just as the weather has changed from the time the study started until it ended. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray you bless your people as we go tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.